We're going to be talking about what a church for the city looks like uh, tonight, and we're going to be looking in Scripture at what God has to say about that, what His people, how they've interacted with that uh, throughout the history of our story together. And so if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles or on your phones to Jeremiah 29, that's primarily where, where we're going to be. And while you're turning there, I'll tell you a little bit about me and why I'm passionate about this. Uh, I'm a pastor and an elder here, and I've had multiple different jobs since I've been here. I was community director first, I was community pastor next, I was the lead pastor here of this congregation after that. And two years ago, uh, they allowed me to step down to start the 405 Center, uh, which is a nonprofit here in our city that works with a lot of different nonprofits around the city, engaging the poor, the needy, the marginalized uh, folks in our city that have the greatest needs. And so we're, we're bringing churches together to do that. We have nine different churches that are sending people to us. Um, and at this point, we've, we've trained over 1,000 people. And um, we're really excited about how this is beginning. And we feel like it's just a beginning. And so this is something that's near and dear to me. And hopefully, you guys benefit from this as we go through it. So I'm going to pray for y'all. You guys pray for me, and then we'll dive in. Sound good? Sound good? Awesome. Cool. So Father, we're so thankful uh, that mission is your idea, that you came after us when we had the greatest need, that you did all that was required to rescue us, that you drew us to yourself, and now we've been given a new name and a new family. So we just lift you up and thank you for who you are. We ask that you would speak to us and change our hearts through your word tonight. We want to hear from you. So Holy Spirit, come and fill this place, fill your people. We ask that we would leave different because of who you are and what you've done. We trust you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4, says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So if you don't know this story or what's going on with the nation of Israel, um, you know, they've had a long history of, of going into slavery, being rescued and redeemed, and then all different kinds and forms of government have existed for the people of God. Uh, as soon as they were rescued out of Egypt, they spent years in the wilderness wandering, God preparing them to be his people so that when they did occupy this promised land, uh, they would be distinct, they would be different, they would be set apart, bringing his goodness, his glory, his mercy, and his freedom with them. Um, they had kings, they had different types of kingdoms, they had systems of rulers and judges, and now we're at a time where they've been snatched back out of Israel and they are exiled again in the land of Babylon. And there's prophets coming to them, claiming to speak for God, saying things that sound like this. Hey, don't worry about Babylon. Don't worry about the people here in Babylon. Um, don't, don't set up shop um, because you're going to be going home soon. So you don't need to worry about this place. You don't need to worry about these people. You don't need to worry about anything but yourself because soon you'll be going back to the promised land. And so God is now speaking through Jeremiah, his prophet, giving them a very clear and distinct message about what's going on and what they can expect. 
And so as we pick up in verse eight, he goes on. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you, from which I have sent you into exile. And so he gives them a promise and a hope, but it's a little good news, bad news, isn't it? Because they're, they're enslaved, they're exiles in a place that's not home. And they're hearing really what they feel like is really helpful, good, positive, encouraging news, right? It's kind of like your best life now news, um, that it's going to be okay, don't fret, don't worry, you're going home. And then God shows up through the prophet Jeremiah and says, actually, no, you're not going home. Um, you're going to be here for a while. And as a matter of fact, I'm the one who brought you here on purpose. I have a very specific reason and plan for you being here, and I need you to consider this home. Um, and you're not going to get to see the promised land, um, but your kids probably will. So this is home for now. So we want you to fight for the flourishing and thriving of this place. And so this is a very true historical story that had real people in a very real historical uh, moment in time in a very real geographic location. Um, but there's not a lot of differences between that story and our story currently. And it's more than just metaphor. Because the reality is, if you're in Christ today, Oklahoma is not your forever home. You have been exiled here to this place, very specifically put here on purpose. And God has a reason and a plan for that. And we have false prophets that are coming to us with very clear narratives and stories telling us things that are contrary to the word of God and they're contrary to God's heart in general. Two very loud voices currently, one in the, in the, the mainstream cultural narrative, and it sounds like this. Hey, there is nothing else. If you can't see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, it's not real. There is no invisible. There is no supernatural. This is it. So get all you can, can all you get, eat, drink, and be merry, YOLO. Like, this is it. And so that's one very loud voice that we hear pretty much on a daily basis. The other voice comes from inside of religion. And it sounds like this. Hey, you know what? Jesus is coming back really soon. And he's coming back to get you, to take you to your forever home. And, and it's going to happen quickly. So just be really good at being um, religious. Be really good at gathering together on Sundays. Be really good at gathering in homes throughout the week. Um, but don't really worry about everyone else outside. Just take care of yourself because Jesus is coming soon and he's going to make all things new again. And the problem with both of those voices is it's not the way God sounds, right? He's got a plan and he's asked us to pray that his kingdom would come here as it is in heaven. And the way that he wants to do that, his plan A with no other plan B, is that his church would be the means by which that would happen. People that are changed, set apart, a new species of people that have a new name adopted into a new family, filled with the Holy Spirit, that are going out as salt and light into our city, 
both proclaiming the good news of Jesus with their mouths and demonstrating the kingdom with their lives, bringing the kingdom here as it is in heaven. And so we've been given that task of his living body. We are his living body comprised of many members that have different gifts, different callings, and different circumstances, all sovereignly brought here together at this same moment in time. And he's telling us to fight for the welfare of this place that we've been sent into exile. And so now it's very easy to relate to the story, knowing that God's heart for us is no different than God's heart for his people back then. It hasn't changed. So what does it mean then to be a church that's for the city? I think before we talk about what it means to be a church for the city, we need to talk about what it's not. Because there's a lot of common ditches or errors that that churches often find themselves in attempting to do this. Um, So there's three in particular that I want to mention. One, what, what a church for the city is not is a church that's against the city. And what I mean by that, it's, it's a bit like a hero mentality that we have all the answers. We've got life on rails. We know how to do this thing. We know how, where, to, where to go. We know how to dress. We know how to behave. We know what to do. And as soon as you're ready to come be a part of who we are and do things the way we do them and believe like we believe and behave like we behave, then you can be a part of this community. But until then, we don't really want to get you on us. So that's one error. Another error would be a church that is just like the city. It's the idea of syncretism. It's the thing that God was fighting against all throughout the Old Testament when you see this pattern of his people going, being sent to a place, and then God judging them and bringing some form of correction and and discipline and discipleship for them so they could come back to him. So they've been sent into a place and they start to borrow and adopt the, the cultural norms that are contrary to God's word the idols that are contrary to God's word, the things about what what is going on within the context and the culture where they've been sent that are not of God, and they're bringing them in to who they are as a people in the effort to be winsome, right? I want to be relevant so that people can get to know God. I want to be uh, liked so that people can get to know me and I can tell them about God. Um, And so what happens throughout that process is eventually you lose everything that makes you distinct And you're just like everybody else in the city. You're just another club that's doing good things for each other, but not much else. So that's another ditch we would want to avoid. The third one is probably the most dangerous and and probably the most attractive uh, here in the Midwest. And that's just the church that's just in the city, right? So you're great at church. You're great at gathering. You're great at community. You're great at scattering. You're meeting in homes throughout the week. Uh, You're really, really good at all the things that a church is supposed to be when they're together. But if you were to disappear like that tomorrow, nobody would miss you. You've made no impact. You're not reaching into anything that's going on that matters in your city. And you just exist for yourself and each other that are a part of this little program. And you're just simply in the city. So we don't want to be one of those three things. We want to be a church that's for the city. So what does that look like? Well, a church that's for the city is always on mission in three ways. So if you're taking notes, um, there's three ways a church for the city is on mission. The first is it's filled with individuals that are on mission personally as evangelists, people that are articulating the gospel and demonstrating the kingdom with the people around them in their family, in their homes, 
uh, where they live, where they work, where they play, right? So that's family members, that's coworkers, that's neighbors, and that's uh, people that you go to school with, right? Uh, so they're, they're personally engaged on mission, making disciples that are making disciples. The second way a church for the city is on mission is through gospel communities, right? We see that in the beginning of the book of Acts when the first Christian church is being formed, right? They're meeting together in homes, breaking bread together, house to house, studying and reading God's word together, praying together, worshiping together, and then taking care of the people within the community and then making sure the community around that community has its needs met as well. And so we do that here, right? That's our community groups. They meet in homes throughout the week and our discipleship groups that meet also throughout the week, right? Where we actually get to together, band together and say, no, we're gonna do life together. We're gonna do the one another's of scripture, but we're also gonna fight for the flourishing and thriving of the community around us where we meet. And we're actually gonna intentionally engage into it and pour into it and love on the people that God's placed around us. The third way a church for the city is on mission is a, is a phrase I'll use, the mission and the margin. And so when you think about a margin, uh, the, the first thing that comes to mind for me is a piece of paper, right? Where are the margins on a piece of paper? Well, they're on the very edges of that paper, right? The same thing is true in our cities. Our cities have margins and they have people that have been pressed into these margins that are filling up fast, right? Marginalized people in our communities. This is uh, the people who are serially poor, people that are in extreme physical poverty. These are people that have been pressed into the margin through a system of injustice, right? Systemic uh, racism, systemic poverty issues. These are people that have been abused, that have been through sex trafficking, uh, people that have uh, experienced great harm done to them is the reason they're in the margin. And then there's people that have health issues and addictions, and they're pressed to the margins because of choices that they're making. And God's heart about the people in the margin is very clear all throughout Scripture. And so I could preach three sermons on all three of those, uh, but I'm not going to do that because I like you guys. We're just going to do one today. And it's going to focus primarily on that third one, mission in the margin. And so to do that well, I want to give you a snapshot of God's character and his heart for the poor uh, before I jump into the word. Um, When we go back and look at God giving the law to Moses, right? The purpose of the law was not like, hey, here's some good ideas. I think you should should try to do these. The purpose of the law was, hey, I'm going to give you some pretty basic, like humanity 101, uh, like don't kill people and don't like take things that you don't own um, and and a few other things. But I'm also going to give you some very clear directives on how to worship, how to do community, how to do marriage. And he he devotes two entire sections in the giving of the law to God's people on how to care for the poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan, the prisoner, the sojourner, the stranger, the people in the gate. And so he devotes quite a bit of time and attention to a very specific thing that he cares a lot about. And we know that he cared a lot about it and that he continues to care a lot about it because the frequency that he spoke about it. You fast forward into the time of some of the prophets, um, particularly the prophet Amos, and God has some very clear words for his people, for his church. And um, he sends the prophet Amos to communicate a, a very distinct message that's on his heart to his people. And it sounded, uh, this is a, this is a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a cliff notes of what Amos said. Um, but here's what it basically sounded like. 
hey, you guys are doing an amazing job singing songs and playing instruments and worshiping, and you're doing it with passion, and I can tell that you really mean it and you believe it. And so that is amazing, great, great job. And you're also doing a fantastic job of taking care of each other in the community that you're a part of, and no one has needs, and, and you're really doing what I asked you to do with each other. So that's, that's amazing. Thank you for doing that. But I don't want to hear your songs anymore. As a matter of fact, your songs are making me sick. And so until you can remember my heart for the poor and the needy, I don't want to hear from you. I need you to care about what I care about. This is important to me. That's hard to hear. Especially in our context. Because if God were to send someone into this room to say that to us, it would be very hard to hear. And that's something that God is saying. That's not something that I am saying. Fast forward to Jesus. Now God literally takes on flesh and comes down to this earth to live amongst us and do life with us. And he has an enormous amount of content on this subject. Talked about it quite a bit. Um, and so if you look at the life of Jesus, he is living life for 30 years doing no ministry. Gets baptized, goes out into the wilderness and comes out of the wilderness and immediately starts performing miracles and talking about and preaching about the kingdom of God that it would be coming here as it is in heaven. And as he's doing that, people that have been blind their whole lives now see. People that have been lame their whole lives are now walking around, dancing, running. And as he goes from the Jordan Valley all the way to the Sea of Galilee, this crowd is amassing because the word is spreading and people want to know, who is this Jesus? Why is he doing this? How can he do this? And what is he going to say? What does he want? And once he gets there, there is literally thousands of people that are gathered together that want to know what this man's all about, why he's here, and what he has to say. And what he has to say is so hard to hear that he takes a crowd of 5,000 plus and reduces it down to 12 by the time he's done for the day. And so what I want to do is look at some of the things he was saying, and I want to go to Matthew 5 to do that. He's in the heat in the middle of this sermon. And what he's doing is he's taking things that are very familiar to them, things that they would have grown up hearing all of the time, part of their education even. Um, and, and he's giving them points of the law and he's saying things like this. Hey, you've heard it said that if you sleep with someone that's not your wife or your husband, that you've committed adultery and that's sin and there's judgment on you. But I say to you, if you even look at someone with lust in your heart, you've committed the act already. It's just as grievous of a sin and the same judgment is on you. Hey, you've heard it said that if you kill someone in cold blood, that's murder and that's a sin and there's judgment on you. But I say to you, if you even have hate in your heart for a brother or a sister, you've done it already and the same judgment is on you. So what he's doing is he's systematically taking the bar that's already, already too high, right? It's already impossible to keep, and he raises it like six notches to the point of like, whoa, this is impossible. What you're saying is all of us are bad. And he's like, yes, that's what I'm saying. All of you are in the same boat. And, I, and I'm come for you, all of you. And so he's in the heat of this. And in Matthew 5, we get to verse 38, and here's what he says. 
You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So to make this practical, let's put that command from our king to obey, right? Because he's saying, if you're not just merely a believer of mine, if you're an actual follower of mine, one of my disciples, this is the way we're going to do life. This is not, um, there's no caveat, there's no distinction, like unless you're busy, unless you're broke, unless, unless. It's just like, no, this is it. This is the deal. It's a command from me to you to obey. And so let's put ourselves in a situation where we kind of feel the weight of what he's actually saying. Because I'm pretty sure all of us, based on the fact that you come downtown to go to church every week, um, have at least one encounter like this in a month. You're in your car, you pull up to a streetlight, there's someone there holding a sign that says, I'm hungry, I'm homeless, please give me money, uh, we'll work for food or something very clever, right? And so now be in that situation in your car, but consider this command from Jesus to obey. He's saying, give to the one that begs from you, no caveat. Do not refuse the one that would borrow from you. So now you're in this situation and you're faced with a bit of a dilemma, right? Because we're talking about mercy. Am I to bring mercy to this person? Well, what is the requirement for mercy? What has to be loving? Or it's not merciful. Well, what's the most loving thing I could do for this person? What if, uh, what if I gave them money and they're a drug addict? What if that actually kills them? What if uh, my family's waiting on me and, and uh, you know, I, I'm going to actually injure them by stopping to take care of this? What if they're not even homeless? What if it's a scam? What if it's a, what if it's a waste of the resources I've been given? Right? We ask ourselves a lot of questions that are about what we should do, right? And it's very complicated, uh, especially when you're considering the words of Jesus here. It gets incredibly complicated. Well, luckily, Jesus has asked this question, and he answers it, and we have it recorded in Scripture. So if you turn to Luke 10... we can take a look at what Jesus has to say about this. In Luke 10, starting in verse 25, we see this happen. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And that is literally the question we were all just asking ourselves trying to answer my earlier question. Is this my problem? Or is this someone else's problem? 
Who is my neighbor? Is this person even my neighbor? Well, Jesus is brilliant in this moment because he's got this guy pretty much against a wall, right? And we get some pretty helpful information to know what's actually going on here. We know the guy's a lawyer, right? Uh, We know that he's putting Jesus to the test on purpose. And then Jesus says, hey, you're an expert in the law. That's what you do for a living. How do you read it? You tell me what the answer is. And the guy does the worst thing he could possibly do. He gives the actual right answer, right? He gives him the real answer, which is the impossible thing to do. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? Are you kidding me? Can't do that. And Jesus totally has the guy over a barrel and says, um, well, yeah, do that and you'll live. You know, tongue in cheek. And then we know the guy desiring to justify himself asks this next question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers his question with the equivalent of once upon a time, three guys walk into a bar. He tells a story, and all of us pretty much know this story. Even if you haven't been to church your whole life, you've heard a version of this story. It's the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The story is there's a man that's been beaten half to death, is laying on the side of the road dying, and a preacher walks up, a pastor walks up, crosses to the other side of the road, keeps going. Then another pastor from a different denomination shows up. He sees the man, does the same thing, keeps going. And then the unlikeliest of all unlikely heroes in this story for this cultural moment, a Samaritan, right? He shows up and he does what needs to be done for this man. He he stops, he takes care of him, he binds his wounds, takes him to a hotel, uh, which back then was a hospital, makes sure that he's taken care of, set up, leaves money to make sure he'll continue to be taken care of, and then even makes a promise that he's gonna return. And if the bill has gone over what he left, he'll pay that as well. And then Jesus says to the lawyer, so who do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? And the lawyer's stuck, right? He's, well, the the Samaritan did, right? Do this and you'll live. So here's what Jesus is saying. The heart and the character of God in in this text is saying this, your predisposition should not be to try to figure out how to get out of this. If you're one of mine, if you bear my name, my heart, my spirit inside you, your predisposition should be to give, to figure out what is the most loving thing in this moment. And I think because we ask so many doing questions, like what should I do? Should I give him food? Should I give him money? Should I give him water? Should I keep driving? What, you know, all the things we might do for this person. And I think that's part of the problem because there's things that need to be done for this person that we can't do. And there's things about this person that information that we don't even have to make a good qualified decision about what to do. So what what I want to challenge us in is maybe what would be more helpful is to start asking some being questions. Like not how much time should I give him doing question. What do I value? And it should sound more often than not like this. Do I love this person and see them as my neighbor? And if I'm being honest, when I'm in a situation like that, and I am a lot, uh, the answer is no. No, I don't love this person right now. And no, I don't see them as my neighbor right now. And this is complex and difficult, and it's not fun. It's actually really complicated and hard. So I need you, God. I need you to change the way I see this person. I need you to change my heart for these people. 
right? So it's not about jumping to solving their problem. It's about remembering that God has done this for us already. That we're actually supposed to be a people that are responding to everyone out of the overflow of what God has already done for us. That we are literally the person on the road, bleeding out, dying. That God literally stops, enters into the situation uninvited and does for us what we can't do for ourselves. That he takes us to a hospital called a church and he gives us community and family so that we can be cared for and grow up in all the things that he has for us. And he promises that he's gonna return to come and claim us and take care of the bill and make all things right. And so out of the overflow of that is the heart behind what we are supposed to be engaging in as his church as we approach this work of what it means to be a church for the city, engaging in mission in the margin. So we have to keep going back to a belief question. We can't keep going to the same questions that aren't helpful and aren't working and aren't changed. There's no transformation and there's no change if you just give a person a bottle of water. You did a kind thing. Humanity is a little bit better because of that good thing that you did. Maybe they'll pass it on and maybe that will happen a million times and nothing will be any different still. God is the only one that can transform someone's life, someone's heart, someone's situation. He's the only one. A friend of mine, an author and a pastor in Hot Springs, Arkansas named Drew Dodson uh, came to spend some time with us for a week to really help us when we were in the beginning stages of starting the 405 Center. And he wrote a really helpful book called Kingdom Outposts. Uh, And when he uses the word kingdom outposts, um, it's just imagine that's synonymous with the phrase I've been using tonight, church for the city, right? And inside of this book, there's a really helpful section. I'm just gonna read it to you. The words will be on the screen. It was really helpful for me as I was trying to get my head around this. I think it'll be helpful for all of you. This is what he says. God's kingdom outposts have a different vision, one of a redeemed future for humanity. The goal is not simply a better future, but a recreated future. A future where not only is our economic poverty fixed, but the poverty of our rebellious relationship with our creator is forgiven and healed. The poverty of our greedy use of his creation is healed. The poverty of our broken relationships with one another is reconciled. And the poverty of our inner shame and bankruptcy is cured. It is a comprehensive vision of salvation, both now and in the age to come. God's kingdom is not merely looking for the advancement of the human condition. It is looking for an advent, a second advent where the promise of his kingdom outpost is fully realized in the whole earth. A future with not only more money in our pockets, but a new spirit in us. A future where the goal is not autonomous freedom, but the freedom to love and serve God, one another, and God's creation. What he's saying is this is bigger than you. And it's bigger than any one church. And it's actually God's mission. And he's just invited you into what he's already doing. So how do we do this then as a church? One of the ways I like to think about it is a funnel. So the funnel's wide at the top, narrow at the bottom, right? The top of the funnel, as it relates to this, I would say going from totally unengaged and and not doing anything and unaware is the first step would just be exposed to the reality that this is real. That there's people dying, hurting, being manipulated, being pressed, being abused all over our city. And our city is 
is designed so that we never even have to see it if we don't want to. You can go from your driveway to your office, to the grocery store, to any retail store imaginable, and never drive through these parts of town if you don't want to. So the first step is just being exposed to the reality that those people that God talked about all throughout Scripture live in my city too. And God cares a lot about them. He loves them. He says they have infinite value, worth, meaning, just because they're breathing air, because they bear his image. Moving from exposed to involved looks like just taking a step that, hey, I want to engage with this. I want to do something. I want to be a part of God's mission in this place, the place I've been exiled. And then moving from involved to eventually all the way at the bottom of the funnel, moving into invested, meaning I'm in a relationship with someone. Because here's the deal. The reason it was so hard to answer the question I asked earlier about the guy holding the sign is because you don't know him. You don't know his story. You don't know his tendencies. You don't know what's happened. And so you can't figure out what the most loving thing is is because you have no freaking clue. And how would you? You have no relationship with this person. So the first thing about mission is that it has to lead to discipleship or there is no mission going on. And the thing about discipleship is that it never happens outside of relationship because you can't be in a discipleship relationship with someone if you don't spend time with them and know them and they don't know you. So relationship is required. And that's what investment looks like. Being invested on mission means that you know people that are in this situation and they know you and you know what their kids like to do and they know what your kids like to do. And you're sharing stories and life together consistently and regularly and you're walking out life together. That's what mission in the margin actually looks like. Because I, I just got to be honest with you. Here's what our city doesn't need. Our city does not need another group of 50 white people wearing the same color t-shirt, going into a place and handing out blankets and burritos and going home and never coming back. Because it's demeaning, it's patronizing, and it's evil. It's wicked. God demands a higher standard. He raises the bar six more. So if we go back to Jeremiah and look at this situation and consider it rightly, we see that we're in the same boat. We're exiled here. And he's given us a promise and a plan and a hope, but he's also given us a command to obey and instructions on how to do that. And the reason we do it is not because we're trying to gain his favor or because social justice matters more than God or the gospel, because it doesn't. We do it because he's done it for us. God left the comfort and the luxury of heaven and came here and took on flesh and became poor for us. Lived a life that none of us could live on our own, given a million tries. Then he died the death that every single person in this room and all over the globe deserved because we were enemies and far from God. He did what none of us would be able to do to atone for all of the sin, all of the separation. And then three days after being buried in a tomb, he busts out of the tomb, comes back to life, raised from the dead, holding the keys and defeating Satan, sin, and death and says, all of you that come to me, I'll never drive you away. 
And once you're here, no one can ever snatch you from my hand. You're mine, which is good news, not bad news. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. And he's telling us, hey, you're my people. Love the way I love. Serve the way I serve. Do this because it's my heart, not because it's yours. And I'll change your heart as you do it. So God cares way more about this than we do. But he's placed very specific gifts and calling in all of us as individual members of this one body, which we have one small body here at Frontline. There's also one huge body in Oklahoma City. There's also one enormous body all over the globe, his church, his people. And he's given us very specific instructions that yes, I have a future and a plan and a hope. You may not get to see it. Your kids might get to see that. But until you die, this is what life looks like. And here's what I'm asking and inviting you into because I actually love you. This is for you too. This was my plan and you're included in my plan. So we wanna build relationships as we do all three kinds of mission, right? It's not just mission in the margin. It's also gospel community. It's also personally being an evangelist, doing discipleship, making disciples that make disciples, all of those. But as we go about doing that as his church, we're to be building relationships, bridging gaps as we go. So for us, the, one of the reasons we started the 405 Center was to try and remove as many of the obstacles and the pitfalls um, and the speed bumps that are in the way of moving from I'm exposed to the fact that there is a problem to I want to be involved. And so we've tried to make it very easy for everyone to step in and engage once they find themselves feeling God's heart for these people. Uh, we even train you and equip you and do discipleship with you on the front end before you're even sent out to go. And so what we wanted to do today was highlight four of our, our, our partners, four of our friends that do really amazing work in this city. Um, and we wanted to give you an opportunity to engage with them. They've got tables set up in the back and Chad's gonna explain how that's gonna work in a minute. But before that happens, we've got a short video so that you can hear from them about the work that they're doing in our city. So watch this video. I'm Francois Cardinal with Stand in the Gap Ministries. Stand in the Gap Ministries connects people in need with people who care. We focus on three very biblical populations, orphans, widows, and prisoners. And the heart of what we do is recruit volunteers to join a small group to come around one of these clients. We call our clients neighbors. We call those small groups spiritual families. And so to, to become part of a spiritual family and walk shoulder to shoulder with that individual as they go through this very challenging life transition uh, and walk alongside providing relational, emotional, and spiritual support and helping them successfully transition into our community, loving them into the community. That's all done by volunteers. And so we need volunteers who all you have to do really is care uh, and we'll provide the training that you need and then you'll join a group and it just you just do life together. 
name is Jake Linhart, and I get the privilege of overseeing our partnership with City Rescue Mission here at Frontline Downtown. City Rescue Mission started in 1960 with 20 beds, and today has a facility that houses about 640 beds and takes care of nearly 5,000 people every year. City Rescue not only focuses on relief, but more importantly, has a model for development. Nearly a decade, Frontline has been having the Thursday night church service at the City Rescue Mission, now with clients that are in a recovery program called the Bridge to Life program. It's a 10-month long program where clients are gonna get to focus on addiction and mental health, and they're gonna get to see it through the lens of the gospel. On Thursday night, every week, we have volunteers from Frontline that lead worship that teach, that work with the kids that are there with their parents, that do shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder ministry with the clients there, that also has an opportunity to continue on Sunday morning because we pick up clients and bring them to our 9 a.m. service. It's a great way to be able to proclaim the gospel with their mouth and also demonstrate the gospel with their life. My name is Luke Whitmire and I work at Cross and Crown Mission. We're located at Northwest 9th and McKinley and we exist to assist the community and provide resources for those in need. We do this through uh, relationships. Our ministries range from food pantry, a clothing room, we have a medical clinic, legal aid clinic where we provide uh, legal services for those that can't afford to pay for their own. We have an after school program and a summer program at our youth center which is called Rock Island and we have uh, transitional housing for individuals that are coming out of incarceration or those that are just in between housing. Opportunity to serve comes in uh, meeting these individuals, coming alongside them, entering into the difficulties, and us collectively rallying together to figure out what are some realistic ways to address these issues. We're in constant need of volunteers to come tutor, to come make food boxes, to assist in the medical clinic, and in any other way that you have a skill set to provide for the community. My name is Ernest Odunzi and I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline Church, but I'm also a director at Restore OKC. Our mission is to build relationships of reconciliation in Northeast Oklahoma City. We do that various ways. One of our largest ministries is Stone of Hope, where we work directly within the school. We provide school supplies for every classroom. We mentor and tutor kids one-on-one -on -one and as a group. Also, we do special events throughout the year. Every second Saturday, we do something called Work Day, where we mobilize volunteers to go throughout the community and provide free repairs for the elderly and also those who are living in poverty. And finally, we'll be starting Freedom Farm. Freedom Farm is gonna provide fresh produce for the entire community, but it's also going to create jobs for the locals, and we would love to have your help. 